we recognize our total lack and realize God's kingdom is our only hope. We grieve over our sin and so run to our comforter. We don't trust in our own strength, but trust in the strength of our king. Appetites are changed, and we now long for the bread that does not perish. We see and treat others through the lens of our undeserved forgiveness. We cultivate our inner man as a gardener would carefully tender their plot. And our life mission is to break down the wall between man and God and bring peace. And as a result, we are disliked. But that does not stop us from flavoring and lighting up our world. God's Word remains the center of our lives and our plumb line in everything we do. Even when our emotions get to us, we always remember who we were before Jesus saved us, and so we are the first to apologize and often forgo our rights for the sake of peace. We never forget that we are sinners and we treat personal sin ruthlessly. We highly value and fight relentlessly for our marriages. Our word is our bond, and we follow through with our commitments, even when we could get away without doing so. We remember our Savior on the cross when the desire to fight back rages within us, and we find an unnatural ability to suffer wrong and yet still love the unlovely. Our Christian disciplines are private necessities, not public demonstrations. And our difference from the world is not demonstrated by moralistic rants, but rather by the way we handle money and possessions. We're open-handed and generous and refused, and refuse to live under the confines of abject materialism. As a result, we don't worry, but we trust that in both the good and the bad times, our Father will take care of His children. That is the MOV, Mike's own version. <laughs> I actually wrote this in my Bible a number of years ago, uh, down the size as I read the Sermon on the Mount. I summarized it in terms I could understand. It was a brief synopsis, and I, for me, as I reread it, I thought, yeah, it was helpful for me again, so I, you, you got it too. Um, for those of you <coughs> who are visiting with us, uh, you can always catch up uh, online to, to catch previous messages, but Vic did a great job last week of launching our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, one of the things he shared was how Moses actually gave the law uh, on Mount Sinai. He, he, he spoke to the people on Mount Sinai, and he gave the law to them. And, um, and in this case, we have Jesus on a mountain, but he's now speaking on a mountain, re, kind of the new law. So we have these two parallels that are not, not coincidental. The idea of the law was given to actually distinguish Israel from the nations around them, and they were supposed to live differently, and it was supposed to be obvious if you looked at Israel. Um, and on this mountain, Jesus is basically doing the same thing. He is uh, showing us how the Christ follower lives differently and doesn't blend in. I'm going to start actually not in Matthew. I'm going to start in John chapter 1. It's going to come up behind me or to the side of me here. And John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, talking about John the Baptist, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So I want to just clarify that a little bit and then get into the meat of what I want to share. So here, the, the law was given through Moses. So up behind me, Exodus 19, this is the stated goal of the law. The stated goal of the law was written in Exodus 19, verse 5. This is what uh, God instructed Moses to tell the people. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice in truth and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own peculiar possessions and treasure from among and above all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, consecrated, set apart to the worship of God. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites. So there's the kind of the stated goal is this kingdom of priests um, never actually happened during, during the time of Israel. They had a priesthood where they did not have the full kingdom of priests. I think as it, those of us who are maybe familiar with the New Testament, that's what we are called as Christ followers. We are a kingdom of priests. But that was the stated goal. But then again, now we have the actual purpose of the law. In Galatians 3.19 and Romans 3.20, really easy to remember them. They're almost the same. Romans 3.20, uh, 3, Galatians uh, 3.19. And I'm just going to quickly read those. What was the purpose of the law? It was added later on after the promise to disclose and expose to men the guilt because of transgressions and to make men more consciousness of the sinfulness of sin. So the idea was that it would make men more consciousness. I don't think it's a different, it's a different translation here, but yeah, it's fine. Uh, to make men more conscious. So we have Galatians 3.19. The idea of the law was to make people conscious of the sinfulness of their sin. They were not able to follow the law. They were faced with failure every single day. The system of sacrifices bailed them out, but every day they got to realize we cannot keep this law. Romans 3.20 basically says the same thing. The real function of the law is to make men recognize and be conscious of sin. So that's what the law did was just show Israel that they couldn't keep the law. And it was a probably harrowing for them when these laws, 620 laws or whatever it was, or 630, all these laws are there, and they're failing at a high level in keeping those laws. And so the law can never save somebody. It cannot. It was not designed to. It was designed to show us, designed to cover sin with the sacrifices, but it was also designed to show uh, a path to a Savior who is Christ. So in summary, the law was given to separate Israel from other, other nations, but at the same time, it revealed to all who tried to keep it that they could not because they were sinners. And that is the context in which Jesus came. The sinless one came. He was the only one that could and did keep every commandment. So here's the kind of the sequence coming into the Sermon on the Mount. We're starting in uh, Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you the Coles Note version. So in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus' baptism. Some of you may remember that. Then we see the temptation where Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. He did not, uh, he was led, he wasn't forced in, he was led into the wilderness. He accepted that commission to go in and confront Satan in the wilderness. After he came out of the wilderness, he started to preach. 
And his message was simple. It was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As a result of that message, then he called people to himself. He started calling men to himself. And then after that, he taught and he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in the synagogues and around, and then uh, and also healed people. And in Matthew 5, we have the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. So, the, so those first fishermen that responded to the call, what they did was they repented. So they repented when they heard Jesus call to repent for the kingdom of heaven um, is at hand. So repentance for Simon Peter, for Andrew, for James and John looked like leaving their boats. And in the case of James and John and their father Zebedee, sorry Zebedee, and blindly following. I don't know about you, every time I see that passage, I'm trying to imagine Jesus walking past and you're basically just walking away from everything. Um, and just, you know, Dad, it's been nice. You know, I'm not quite sure when I'll be back, but it's been real. I mean, it's a pretty radical call. It was just, come on, follow me. And, um, you know, we may not instantaneously walk away from our jobs or our family commitments when we meet Christ, but at the very least, discipleship means realigning priorities and values to become what we call a mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S. So you may not walk away and leave everything, but as a minimum, discipleship means that we realign our priorities and our values to become a Methodist. The word Methodist is going to come up here, I believe. Oh, man. Choose your blocked view. <laughs> you, can, you can start here, go here, and end up back there again, and you probably get the whole message. And again, this is kind of the original language. It's, it's busy and messy. The word is, um, methetus means it's the mental effort needed to think something through. That's the, the origin. It means a learner, a disciple, a follower of Christ who learns the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. I'll leave it at that. So the picture, the picture of, of a disciple, if you want a visual of what a disciple is, this is what a disciple is. This is the visual of a disciple. One more arm. This is the visual. It's sitting on the edge of the seat. It's learning for it's leaning forward and it's leaning in to the one who saved us. It's not a casual look at you all sitting back. Look, no, not a disciple in the place. You're all so relaxed. You know, it's, it's that leaning in, that leaning forward. That's the visual of what it means to be a disciple. So Jesus gathered around his Methetus around him in Matthew chapter 5, and then the crowd behind them, it seems like. It doesn't exactly specifically say so. Now think about this. The audience who were listening to Jesus were unregenerate. They had never had an internal change. He had called them, but they were still probably Jewish, most of them. Or um, I know Matthew was a tax collector, and you go through the list of them. But they had a Jewish background, the majority of them that were called to him. And, there, uh, and this teaching for, for them was a breathtaking departure from the things that they'd heard through their entire lives. 
It'd be almost like, you know, you call, somebody comes who does amazing things and calls you and then completely tells you everything you ever believed is different. And you, you would probably not quite know what to do with that. And their background was the Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures, and uh, they'd heard these things for years, and they listened and heard through the lens of years and years of failed law-keeping. That was the lens they had. Years of not being able to, to, uh, to keep the law. And now this man, this incredible man, is changing what they've known and raising the bar to an absolutely insurmountable level. So here's the difference. <clears throat> here's the difference. We read the Sermon on the Mount through the eyes of grace and truth, not law and legalism. That's how we read the Sermon on the Mount, through the eyes of grace and truth, not through the eyes of law and legalism. The Sermon on the Mount rings true in the heart of the regenerate. For those of us who have had a personal experience with Christ, and many of us have really crazy stories of what we were before and what happened to us, and how our lives radically changed. Many of us have really incredible stories of that. And we'd love to, if you're visiting with us, I'm sure many of us would love to tell you those stories. But the reality is, is this Sermon on the Mount rings true in our hearts if we've been radically changed by Jesus. Is it attainable? Is the Sermon on the Mount, all the things he's going to talk about and all the things we're going to share over the next period of time, is it attainable? And I will say, strangely, yes, to those of us that have received grace. For those of us that have received grace upon grace and are becoming Methetus disciples, it is strangely attainable. Think about this. Um, as I was reflecting on this, prior to us meeting Christ, not one of the Beatitudes would be either desirable or attainable. The things that Vic talked about last week, there's not one of those things were either desirable or obtainable for us pre-Christian. I was thinking about my early years in Canada in the sales world. I was, um, I was the youngest guy ever hired uh, by Metropolitan Life. I was hired as a 19-year-old to sell life insurance, believe it or not. It was a shock. What were they thinking? And um, so, you know, if I look back and I reflect the Beatitudes, I was not uh, and didn't want to be poor in spirit. I had no interest in being poor in spirit. I never mourned over my inner condition. I had no desire to be meek, which I thought was weak. My arrogance and my self-reliance were fueled by success and notoriety. I was driven by a hunger for things, fame and fortune, and being merciful and charitable was only something that I did for the self-promotion or the photo shoot. Pure in heart, a peacemaker? Come on. <laughs> Hardly. That was not on my radar whatsoever. But when John 1.16 happened to me, from his fullness, I received grace upon grave, grace. This new life was now fueled by grace and truth. And it didn't seem impossible at that point to love others. It didn't seem impossible. We started hanging out with people that I would have never hung out with before. I remember having this moment. We 
got, became Christ followers. We went to the UK and we were discipled in the UK in phase one of our, of our methetusness. And uh, I just remember sitting in a room and I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking like, those people in this room, my goodness me, I would never have hung out with one of them previously, pre-beatitudes. I would not have hung out with them at all whatsoever. So, it's, you know, it didn't seem impossible anymore to love others and to live in harmony with them, or it didn't seem impossible now to be faithful to my wife forever. That didn't seem impossible. Or to become a man of my word, and not to retaliate when I had every right to do so, or to be generous and to live for a bigger story, not to spend my life fearful of not being able to make it financially, or to not live my life judging others or even myself to live the golden rule as an everyday lifestyle. Those things did not seem impossible at that point. So here's the deal, the kicker. The Sermon on the Mount is what grace and truth look like lived out by a Methodist. So when you read it, that's what it looks like. Those that have received grace and truth, remember what came through Moses was what? Through the law. And what came through Jesus? Grace and truth. So Jesus has given us His grace, given us His truth, changed us from the inside out, and then the Sermon on the Mount is what that looks like, mature. So as we grow, that's what it looks like. That's how our lives uh, that's what our lives manifest. Now, I'm not there yet, and you're not there either, for the record. But my conscience, and hopefully your conscience as well, is shaped by this grace and truth. And the things that would have never bothered me, ever bothered me before, now weigh on me heavily. Uh, when I fall short, when I sin. And then I go back again, and I ask for mercy, and I lean on that undeserved favor, and I dig into the truth that sets me free. So is it, is it unattainable what we're talking about? No, it's, it's, it's real. It's attainable. It's just as we mature, as we grow as Christ followers, we see more of the Sermon on the Mount naturally lived out through our lives. Remember back in the early days. I remember we went through all these phases. I mean, even like the basics of, I mean, I used to swear like a stormtrooper, you know, back, back in the days. And then... And then when I came to Christ, like three months in, I suddenly went, wow, I just realized my, my language got cleaned up. What happened there? I didn't know. Nobody told me, hey, you, you need to stop drop, dropping F-bombs every minute. I mean, I just stopped dropping F-bombs. I don't know how or why. I just knew the reality was this new life, this grace upon grace that was in my life, this grace and truth that had changed my heart, now was starting to manifest in my outside living. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, don't just think that's for a select few, guys. That's for all of us that are Methetus, that are serious disciples, front seat, leaning with pen and paper, leaning in to Jesus and the gospel. It's for all of us. I'm going to revisit um, the first uh, beatitude, and then we're going to conclude early. Oh, maybe I'll just drag it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Maybe I'll have Corey come up and get you to talk to your neighbor again. <laughs> Man, I tell you, I love Corey, but I used to hate when people told me to do that in church. I'm like, who loves that? Who likes doing that? Anybody? Not one person. All right. It's just you don't know yet, bro. That's <laughs> All right. 
we'll drag it out. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want us to just take a deep, deeper dive into the word blessed. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word blessed is the Greek word eulogio, E-U-L-O-G-E-O, which means to speak well of to Lord and to praise. However, the word here is makarios, which is going to come up miraculously on both screens. Right there. And again, please be creative. <laughs> you can get the full story between both screens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back before, I, back before I had eye surgery, I could have read them both at the same time. It would have been amazing. <laughs> All right. So the word makarios means this. It describes a believer. Um, sorry, I've got to focus. <laughs> the word blessed describes a believer. It's not really easy to read the original, how they break these translations down. It's like, okay, could you have made it more disjointed? You, know, you accomplished that. Thank you. You know, describes a believer in enviable, fortunate position from receiving God's provision favor, which literally extends or makes long and large his grace or his benefits. This happens with receiving and obeying the Lord's inbirthings of faith. Let's go to English on that. Blessed here speaks of those who have received God's favor, which extends his grace in our lives. So we receive God's favor, and at that point, it extends his grace in our lives. So in the first beatitude, so the, you know what beatitude means, right? It means the attitude we're supposed to be. That's what it means. So he said, this is the attitudes that you're supposed to be as a Christ follower. So in this first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, um, the kingdom belongs to those that recognize their wretchedness, their emptiness, their lostness, and then in desperation come to the one who bountifully gives us his provision of salvation by extending His grace to us. And I don't think the sequence here is irrelevant. It starts off with this. It leads with this. And the reality is only the empty can be filled. Only the empty can be filled. Somebody wrote, Oh, the blessedness of the man or woman who has recognized their own abject helplessness and have put their whole trust in God. This is actually the starting point for all of us. You may not actually start there, and I know I didn't, so I did not actually, that was not my starting point when I came to Christ. Why? Because I think I just believed in what others had told me about myself, or what I had told me about myself. So I, you know, I believed, I was a positive thinker, and I was, you know, I believed the best, and I would wake up every day with this great attitude, you know, going out to sell life insurance to an unwilling world. And, you know, so I had this, this super positive attitude the whole time. So when we, when we came to Christ, uh, I did not come because I saw my abject helplessness at all. My journey was different, but this I will tell you, at some point... The gospel only comes alive to us when we realize we are in desperate need of a Savior. You know the hardest people to reach? The hardest people are the religious. Those that have a religious 
semi-nominal background. Very hard to read, very hard to reach them. Why? Because in their mind, the voices of their neediness are drowned by religious piety. So I've done this, so that cancels that out. I've done this, so that cancels that out. I've done this, so that cancels that out. It's like, oh, yeah, I went to church last night. I went to confession. Whatever your deal is, or I'm just a regular good person, cancels that out. But the reality is, is good people are actually not good people. All of us have a massive need to be saved. And it's only when we look inside of ourselves and see this, and if you've never seen it, you need to ask Jesus to show you. I mean, my wife is like tearful city all the time because like every time she opens the Scriptures, she just always says the same thing. I cannot believe, Jesus, that you saved someone like me. And I, for a lot of my Christian life, I was like, I can totally believe, Jesus, you saved someone as cool as me. <laughs> And I used, to, I used to look at her going like, what the heck's wrong with you? I mean, come on, snap out of it, you know. <laughs> Let's be positive here. But that's not now. That's not how I see it now. That I can tell you. That I can assure you. The arrogant are not blessed here. The arrogant are not blessed. Those that are filled by the outside are not blessed. It's the empty that get filled. How do you know that you have, what are signs of poverty of spirit? I'm not going to give you many, maybe just one, because I only have one written down. And we're good for time, so let me think of a second one. Uh, signs of poverty of spirit, what are they? For me, it's prayer reliance, even when you're competent. Even when you can do something competently, Prayer reliance is an indication that you're poor in spirit. You could be so skilled in something, but you still come to Jesus every time before you do anything. You start your day like that. You start every meeting like that. It's just like, I need you. I have never, ever in my entire life been more aware of my need for Jesus than I am currently. That is a fact. That is not like gloss. That, that's, that's the real deal for me. And I think that is a sign the poverty of spirit, prayer reliance, even when you're competent. R.C. Sproul said this, <clears throat> evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I think for those of us that have understood this incredible grace upon grace, grace and truth infilling that we've had, where we've actually seen our lives change and be transformed, and we're so aware of our frailty, of our ability to fail, of all of our, our sinful, still, all, so far in, still all of our sinful attributes. When we realize that we're just a beggar, we're poor in spirit, who desperately need our Savior, it's very easy for us to share the gospel with people that don't look like they're poor in spirit. It's very easy. We can talk to people that are outside there that have no concept of the things of faith. And when they hear our openness and they, talk, they hear us talk about our lives, we just hopefully can point them to the fact that Jesus is the one that can set them free from their bondage and their 
trials and infirmities. So I'm officially done. Um, what I thought we could do today, if we want to just stand together, please. <clears throat> I would love us to, um, to be a little bit self-reflective. It's not going to be like this every week, but it's going to be like this, <laughs> this week again. To be a little self-reflective. And I'd love you to kind of see what, where do you stand on this poor in spirit thing? You know, as parents, we're so like eager to make sure we only speak affirming things to our kids and build their self-esteem. And, you know, that's so important to us. And I get it. I, I would much rather speak positively to my kids than negatively. But the end of the day is the greatest and the least are poor in spirit. The richest and the poorest are poor in spirit. At the end of the day, somehow you have to find a way as a parent to let them know that they're loved and they are super talented and they've got all these gifts, but they desperately need Jesus. You have to find what that looks like as a mom and a, a, mom and a dad or a grandparent even. You have to help them get to that point where you don't affirm the heck out of them where they just, they, they just have no framework for failure or their personal failure because all they ever think about is, um, yeah, I'm amazing. My mom and dad have told me I'm amazing from day one. Well, you may be amazing, but you're also a lost sinner. You're an amazing lost sinner. So find a way of making sure your kids get that. And for those of us that are here that are older, you can't skip this. You can't get past this and still understand the gospel fully. You cannot. Please bow your heads. I don't know if you have any kind of quiet music, um, but real quiet. you've never had that kind of revelation of being poor in spirit, I'm just going to ask you in your own words, quietly ask Jesus to reveal your poverty of spirit. It's when you realize your poverty of spirit, your emptiness, you can receive His enlarged grace in your life. Lord, help those of us that are overconfident, self-confident, arrogant, dismissive of this as a, even a, something to be desired. Lord, there is incredible security in living in a place where you recognize your poor in spirit. But it's, it's to those of us that recognize we're poor in spirit, that's where the kingdom of God comes alive to us. That's where we can start thinking about what it looks like to be a disciple and live out the Sermon on the Mount in front of people that don't know you and just shock them with how we live because we're exhibiting your life and your ways in front of them. But Lord, we come back to that. We rest in that. And we ask that you speak to us. Show us. 
help us. Empower us, Lord, as those that are poor in spirit to experience the fullness of the kingdom. Just while you're quietly reflecting, we have some guests here. I don't want to do. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, the things I want to do, he says, those things I cannot do. And the things I do not want to do, he says, those things I cannot stop myself from doing. That is a life of somebody who has never found poverty of spirit, the reality of that, and found a Savior who will pour out grace and truth in life. So if you're here today, you want to take that step today, or you're watching online, you want to take that step today. Online, reach out to us if you're here. I'm happy just to point you to the city with a hand, put your hand down after that, and we'll be ready to go. Is there anybody here that just said, It's me, I'm ready for that? Just see your hand, just put it up, take it down. please uh, feel free to uh, reach back out to us. I will give um, a couple of quick praise reports as we close. Number one, um, for those of you who heard the message that I shared the other day, Vic shared a testimony. They have their interview tomorrow uh, at uh, 7 a.m., is it? 8 a.m. But you have to be in the city by 7 in the cold waiting. And so I'm going to ask that you pray for them tomorrow morning um, as they... Uh, they line up to do the final interview uh, before they uh, get their full paperwork to go to the U.S. The second thing is, uh, many of you know that my brother has uh, AM, uh, MND, which is Lou Gehrig's disease in the U.K. He's uh, my younger brother. love him. He, he just simply would be my best friend all the time if he was here. He's just a great guy if I was there. 
Last night, um, he is a Christ follower. Um, none of my other family members are Christians. And last night, uh, they interviewed him in a large Anglican church he's a part of. I believe there was at least 700 people there, and they had to get extra chairs. He was interviewed by a nationally known um, sports broadcaster. And uh, they interviewed him. interviewed him and all my family was on the front row and he absolutely hit it out of the ballpark with him sharing the gospel. It just a, it was an incredible privilege. Wish you and Ed could have been there um, and some other nice things. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, those, those are moments, right? I mean, he's dying. Technically, he's dying. You die from MND somewhere three years to five years it could be. He's almost in a wheelchair, athletic guy. But <clears throat> not crying for that because we, we, we wanted him to get to a point where out of the poverty, out of his poverty of spirit, he could find purpose again in his life. And he like last night is so huge. He's a private guy, and he opened his life up for, in front of all these people to share Jesus. I don't know how many people will come to Christ, or if it's my family, I don't know. <clears throat> Richard was not that guy. That's, I'm okay. Thanks, though. Richard was not that guy. It's not real early stages. <clears throat> Richard, was, Richard was, was, my brother was not that guy. Extremely private. I mean, he would say probably very proud, a highly accomplished business business guy and athlete. And he's losing it all. But in the losing it all, he's finding a way to be a gospel witness. And I don't know what the future holds, but I'm so proud of that guy. So None of us have an excuse. We're all beggars. We get to tell other beggars how to find bread. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Okay. All right. I think I'm done. Have coffee. All right. Love you guys. Yeah, and if, you need, if you'd like us to pray, obviously, we'd love to pray with you. Please feel free to come up to the front, and we're here to pray with you.